that you said, those of us who know what it's like to have a pastor speaking in a language we cannot understand. Thank you. <laughs> okay. I don't know if any of you here can remember, but there was a man by the, the name of Eric Abbott who in around about the year 2000 was repeatedly featured in the media because of his propensity for getting lost at sea. He was an unemployed painter who built his own boat and then set out to sea to, in his words, find himself. The only problem was that he was trying to navigate only with the help of an out-of-date AA roadmap. So in the process of trying to find himself, he continually got lost. He actually settled in Shetland, and the reason for that was because every time he got to Shetland, the seas were so rough that he had to be rescued. So as he found the people so friendly, he just stayed there. Now, I believe this is right. In one period, over a fortnight, he called out the lifeboat service 11 times. Understandably, they called him a menace and gave him the no doubt deserved, but I suspect not wholly appreciated accolade of being Britain's worst sailor. I want to confidently say if I go to sea at any time, I'll definitely take his title. But there is another kind of angle, I think, to this. Don't you think that the trust this man showed in the lifeboat service is absolutely remarkable? Now, trust, even of this kind, even in a wonderful organization such as this, can be misplaced because even the lifeboat service, uh, you know, can only do so much. Thankfully, he never discovered the limits, but they can only do so much. And even they can at times make mistakes, for after all, they're only human. But still, don't you think that kind of level of trust is incredible? And it's rare in our time and culture. For we live in an age today where the, the question so many people are asking is, who can we trust? Just who can we trust in our society today? And there is little doubt that we are an incredibly cynical and doubting nation. Businesses seem largely not to be trusted by their customers. Employers don't trust employees, and often the same is true, vice versa. Husbands and wives seem to have a very low level of trust in one another, and almost nobody seems to trust the government. Uh, a survey was done recently, and um, the three least trusted professions, let's just say that politicians were one of them. And that's not a surprise, is it? Not at all. But even professions that once were among the most trusted seem no longer to inspire confidence in the way they once did. I mean, it's, it's tragic, and I know it's certainly unwarranted, but who would want to deny the damage that Harold Shipman, that doctor who killed so many of his patients, the damage that's done to, to many people's perception of the medical profession? So what's the... The problem here, well, I think it's related to that problem that we explored together uh, a week or so ago, the problem of truth decay. And that is the fact that over recent decades, that as a society, we've rejected really the concept of absolute truth as given by God 
as the foundation for our, our life and the foundation for our lives together. And the result of this has been chaos. Well, you see, truth and trust go together. Where there is no truth, you cannot depend on anybody. And this causes us immense strengths as human beings because, you see, we were made to trust. We were created to trust by God, our Creator. We were made by Him, ultimately, to trust in Him. But if we don't learn to trust in God, then that inbuilt drive to trust will lead us to create something else to trust in, an idol. Now, in the Old Testament, an idol is a carved image, a graven image that's worshipped. Let me just make things very clear here, though. That in no way prohibits art or, or decoration in the church. I mean, the cherubim that, that decorated the temple, these were winged, human-headed lions. Read Ezekiel 41, verse 8. And if you look at the decoration of the temple that you find discussed in 1 Kings 7, you find that as well as the cherubim, the temple was decorated with images of lilies, of pomegranates, of lions and bulls, etc., etc. Now, you see, the problem comes in. What constitutes idolatry is when these things are worshipped. That's where it goes wrong. When something else or someone else rather than God becomes the focus of our worship. That's idolatry. But today, you see, in our society, that something else might be money, possessions, might be our family, educational qualifications, career advancement, etc. Because here's the thought, this is the essence of idolatry. Whenever I trust or value anything or any person more than God, then that person or that thing has become an idol for me. You see, we can tend to think maybe that idols are, are part of history. You know, they were way back in the past. Or if they are, it's around today, then, you know, this is found in, in primitive and backward societies. I want to say to you that today there will be people outside polishing their idol. There are people who every day hoover dust and rearrange the furniture in their idol. And I could go on and on giving examples. Idolatry is alive and kicking in 21st century Britain. But God commands us not to have idols because he will not share his rightful place, his first place in our lives. His nature, who he is as the Lord, just won't allow our God to do that. And when we choose to ignore God's command, then that has all sorts of implications. That leads to various repercussions, some of which directly affect us, directly affect our lives. Deuteronomy 4, 15 and 16 says this in the Good News Version. It says, For your own good, make certain you do not sin by making for yourself an idol in any form. So what I want is... Now, to move on to do and to explore today is this issue of idolatry by asking and seeking to answer 
three questions. We're going to explore this by looking at three questions. That is first, what happens when I trust something or someone more than I trust God? What happens? Second, what makes it so hard to trust God? And third, why should we trust God? Why should we? So question one, what happens when I trust something or someone more than God? I would suggest to you that there are at least two negative effects. We are disappointed and we are dominated. We're disappointed and we're dominated. And more often than not, we actually experience both of these. But it is inevitable that whenever you're looking for something or someone to meet all of your needs, then you will be let down. You will be disappointed. You know, if I could just get married, then life would be perfect. If I could just get that job, that particular job, then my life then would be really worth living. If I could just make X, Y, or Z amount of money, then my life would be complete. And in this age that we live in today, the age of the celebrity, you sometimes find this kind of seeping over into the Christian life. You get Christians making certain, what we might call big name Christians. In a sense, they're idle. And that happens when you find people who say that everything that Christian says is accepted without question. That everything that Christian does must be right when they've got absolute trust in them. But then in one way or another, that Christian says or does something that maybe just can't be defended. And I've known people's lives to be absolutely devastated when they've found out that their Christian idol really does have feet of clay. But it is inevitable that if we put our trust in things or if we put our trust in people, if we make them our idols, then we will be disappointed. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 10, 14, those who make idols are disillusioned. And in Hebrews 2, 18, we read, of what value is an idol for he who makes it trusts in his own creation? And what's perhaps not totally surprising, but still incredible, is that things here are actually getting worse. They're getting worse in that that people, often well-educated and important people today, are putting their trust in more and more bizarre and amazing things. For instance, I don't think anyone could deny the the power and influence of the wives of the the presidents of the United States. Well, two of the the more recent ones, among them, it's, it's well known that Nancy Reagan regularly consulted her astrologer. And Hillary Clinton, who's standing for president herself, she almost certainly, during Bill Clinton's time as president, made regular use of a new age medium. And again, sadly, we're actually not one bit better in Britain because Prince Charles, Princess Diana, and I believe it's now the same with uh, Camilla, and the Duke and Duchess, the former Duchess of York, they all were or are involved in new age thinking. But it's amazing though, isn't it? It's frightening to to think, to understand 
that whereas 25, 30, 40, 50 years ago, horoscopes were a kind of novelty feature in daily newspapers that people looked at for a laugh, and astrologers themselves were fun figures. Yet now, these same people are influencing some of the most important people in our world. And the effects of this, I think, are, are trickling down. Ordinary men and women more and more are allowing these kind of things to, to influence their lives. Horoscopes, psychic reading, crystals, things of this kind. And the upsurge in shops that we find dotted around the main streets around the UK of shops selling new age paraphernalia. But they're all going to be disappointed by their idols. Because they don't deliver in this life what they promise, and they've got nothing to offer for the life to come. Bibles don't only disappoint, they also dominate. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 2 says there that, talking to the Corinthians of their past, says that you were controlled by dead idols who led you astray. You see, remember the definition we mentioned earlier, Whatever you value most, whatever you put your trust in, is your God. Well, if this is not the living God, then you have allowed something that was intended to be your servant to instead become your master. And when that happens, when these things that weren't intended to become Lord of your life, as they take first place in your life, then what a reign of absolute tyranny they establish. So people start off taking a drink and sometimes end up being taken by drink as they become drunks, as they become alcoholics. Or people become consumed by the love of money and so their lives are disfigured by an ugly chasing after money and the material. Or people think only of pleasure. They're always chasing the new buzz, the, the latest high. And little by little, their lives become more and more superficial or more and more depraved. We could go on. Rick Warren, though, who's got great insight on this whole subject, he says, what you value most will shape you. And if it is not God, it will warp you. What you value most will shape you, and if it is not God, it will warp you. In God's Word, Psalm 115, verse 8 says, Those who make idols will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. But all of this begs the question, doesn't it, that if idols are so obviously destructive, then what, then what is it in us that seems to, to drive us to create idols. It's heartbreakingly simple, I think. It's, it's an attempt to cut God down to a size that we control. You see, as human beings in our sin, we don't want a God to serve. We want to be served. We want basically to be entertained by God. We don't want really a God at all. What we want is a kind of genie in the bottle, a God who will satisfy us but who will never make demands of us. And there are Christianized forms of this around as well, I'm sad to say. Christians whose faith has been twisted into a kind 
of idolatry. And it's not that these Christians don't love the Lord. It's just that sometimes in our thinking, we get confused between God himself and the things that God uses and perhaps wants us to use. Yes, he does. That He wants us to value, yes, but never to worship. One example that I found in a book by Stuart Briscoe, who you know, once was ministering at Cape and Ray, but for a long time has been in the United States. But what he speaks of is that we sometimes hear people refer to a church building as God's house. Now, often I'm sure that's just a case of bad terminology and nothing more than that. For the facts, of course, are that Hamilton Baptist Church isn't this building. No, it is God's people here who are Hamilton Baptist Church. And this building is simply the place where Hamilton Baptist Church meets. And this building is not God's house. It's a place where we meet with God in special ways and precious because of that. But to call it God's house could give the wrong impression to some. That God could in some way be restricted by a building. But the question that Stuart Briscoe and others raise is, is that perhaps subconsciously what some Christians want? We want the church to be God's house. We want to see the church as God's house so that we can be here and then go out from here and really do what we want to do, live how we want to live. Now, another different form of this is what I've heard referred to as bibliority. I'll get that word later. Uh, where some Christians appear to worship the Bible itself rather than the God that the Bible testifies to. Now, of course, there's a, a very delicate balance to be found here. For, of course, as Christians, we should love and treasure the Word of God. But, you know, I think I see shades of Biblia, that word, when you find Christians who are so caught up in interpretations and sometimes of minor doctrines that they're unwilling to share in real fellowship with other Christians who actually share the same basic faith in Christ and agree on the big things of the church, the big things of the gospel. And when these Christians then defend their interpretations that they have in a way that shows little of the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. And often at the same time as they do all of this, show little real compassion of Christ's compassion for a dying world and little of his desire to sacrifice and to serve in his name. And there's a terrible example of this kind of thing during the week that I read of in a United States retirement home where a 67-year-old pastor in a wheelchair shot an 80-year-old pastor dead because they were arguing about the Bible. Arguing about the Bible. It, it makes you wonder, doesn't it, what's really going on at the heart of somebody's life? They've lost what it's all about. You see, the root of sin in the Garden of Eden was man's desire to be like God. That's what we want in our pride. That's what we want in our sin, to be like God, to be in charge, to be in control. But when we realize that we can't achieve that, then we go for second best. That is, we try to whittle God down to our side. 
at our size. But that's the answer to our first question. What happens when I trust someone or something more than God? What happens? I'm disappointed because they, that fails me. And I'm dominated. Eventually, I find myself controlled by these things. We move on to question two. What makes it so hard to trust God? And here we're going to be a lot briefer because the answer is a very simple one. What makes it so hard to trust God? And that is, we find it hard to trust God when we don't really know God. When we don't really know Him for who He is. For if we really know God, if we really know Him, if we know how much He loves us, so much that He sent Jesus to die for us, if we know His great purposes for our lives, all that He wants to achieve in us and through us and for us, then if we know this, if we know this God, then we will love Him and trust Him in return. The trouble with so many people today, though, is that our image of God has been influenced and formed, or at least it's been contaminated by what has been called by some talk show theology, rather than what the Bible itself actually says. So we've got God, the, the cosmic cop, they say, whose main mission, whose joy it seems to be is to, to catch us doing wrong and then punish us for doing it. But who wants to trust? Who wants to love and serve? A God like that. And then we've got God, the kind of celestial Santa Claus, a God whose job it is to bless you, a God whose job it is to take care of you, a God who no matter what you do is going to say, that's okay. Don't worry about it. Don't even think about it. And of course, this God, when people have this image of God, He couldn't stop you anyway because He's powerless and He's impotent. Well, let me tell you, this isn't God. That isn't the God of the Bible. He isn't powerless and impotent. He does love you. Yes, He does, no matter what you do. But He doesn't approve of all you do. And when there's change that's needed in your life, He wants you to change. And He will bring things into your life to open your eyes to that. Now, we could go on and on here with various different views of God because, you know, we live today in a world where one of the more popular mantras is, you know, I like to think of God as, and then there's all sorts of things put in. But, you know, here's the real bottom line. What you think God is like doesn't actually matter. What matters is what God says He's like, and He tells us what He's like in His Word. That's what matters. But let's just try and pull together what we've said so far in a, a statement, a sentence or two. God says, if you don't know me in a true way, you're worshipping an idol. If you don't know the truth about me, you can't trust me. And if you can't trust me, you can't have a relationship with me. And remember, the alternative to trusting God is to try to control our own lives, is to try and set up our own little idols. And that's the road 
to disappointment, to domination, to worry and despair. But God says, I've got a better idea. Trust me. Worship me. Give your life to me. And that brings us on to our third and final question. That is, why should we trust God? Why should we trust God? Well, let me suggest, and I can't do much more than suggest because we've got to watch our time, but let me just suggest three reasons why we should trust God. First of all, because he always tells the truth. God always tells the truth. You see, he is the truth. Truth is right at the very heart of who God is. John 14, 6 says of the Lord Jesus that he is the way, the truth, and the life. You see, Jesus then is truth become flesh. And Hebrews 6, 18 in the Living Bible translation says of God, it says, we can completely trust him for it is impossible for God to lie. Now, when you know that that's who God is, when you know that, then such a God as that is worthy of your worth, worthy of your trust and the obedience that goes along with that. It might not always be easy in life to worship and trust and obey. It might not always make you popular. It might not. But it's good. And it is right to worship and trust and obey. And this will lead ultimately in your life to goodness and to righteousness, to God's blessing and everything that goes along with that. Second reason why we should trust God is because He loves us. Because He loves us. For you see, as well as being truth, God is love. God is love. He created us as an act of love. And Jesus is the greatest expression of God's love. Jesus Christ coming to this earth, leaving the glory of heaven. Jesus dying on the cross for us as the perfect sacrifice, the sinless one, paying the price of our sin. Now, don't you think that we can trust and safely give first place in our lives to a God who loves us that much? Another reason why we should trust God, I believe, is because He is in control. God is in control. And that's a fact that God is working out His purpose and plan in human history. That's a fact at the very deepest level, beneath the surface of all our human actions and human plans, behind it all, underneath it all, God is moving mankind towards the climax that he has planned and that will be revealed at the return of Jesus Christ. And you know, this God wants to do the same thing on this earth in each of our individual lives. Listen again to the famous verse, to what it says in Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who've been called according to his purpose. Now, now, did you see what that's saying? It's saying God can take everything that goes on in our lives. The good choices, the acts of obedience, and even the bad choices that you make, and even the evil things that are done to you. What it's saying is that God can take all these things and he can use them for good. Yes, he can. He can use them to make you more Christ-like in character. He can use them 
to lead you into service in the right way in your life. He can use them to enable you to be blessed and then to be a blessing. And he can do it all if only in the midst of them we're ready to love him, to trust him, to obey. To keep on, even when it's hard, giving him first place as the Lord of our lives. Now, of course, it's better and it's much less painful for us if God can bring good and blessing into our lives and from our lives through our obedience, rather than us having to be broken and sometimes learn the lessons that come from disobedience. Of course, we're not saying that God directly causes everything that happens in our life. Because a lot of that is down to us. It's down to our choices. It's down to bad things other people do. And certainly, evil ultimately always comes from the evil one. But what we are saying is that God can take even bad choices, that he can even take wrong and wicked and evil things that are done, and God can take them and use them for good. He can use them to bring blessing. If only we're ready to keep on loving him. If only we're ready to keep on trusting him. If only we are ready to keep on giving him his place as Lord of our lives. Now let me finish with just a very simple illustration out of family life. Most of us here, I'm sure, have either been in the situation or certainly been witnesses of the well-known swimming pool scene, you know, where the father or mother's there in the pool and they're trying to encourage their, their little one, their little child, to jump out to them. And the child's there and they want to do it, but they're not really sure. You know, they look there and, you know, that water's really deep. You know, can I really trust them to catch me? And the parents there and they're they're calling out, can I jump in, jump in? You know, you can trust me, just jump in. And eventually, the child does it. And it's wonderful to see their joy because it is a wonderful thing to trust and not be disappointed. It's a wonderful thing to see. And usually for the next 40 minutes, all you hear is that cry again and again and again, again. And eventually... The parent crawls exhausted at the end of it out of the pool. I want to say to you, wonderful as the child's joy is, usually the deeper joy is the joy of the parent. For it is a wonderful thing to be trusted. It's a wonderful thing to know that your child has got trust in you. Now that's something I believe at least of how God our Father feels when our faith, when our trust is truly in Him. When we make Him, really make Him and live with Him as truly Lord, truly first in our lives. So today, as we come to God, trusting in Him and putting our faith in Him, we can bring because of that not only joy and blessing into our own hearts and lives, but we can also bring joy to God's heart. We can bless our God. There's no greater privilege. Nothing matters more. Let's come to God in prayer. Father, we just want to thank you and remember 
and acknowledge today who you are, that you are the Lord, that you are first, and that you've created us to know you in that way. And whenever we fall away from that, whenever in whatever way we make something or someone else first in our lives before you, that always leads to disaster in one kind or another. Father, help us today as your people to refocus, to recenter our lives upon you. Help us, Lord, that we might know the joy and the blessing that only comes as we truly know our God as Lord. And this we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.